It's not like there's there's like anything magic about me or you. But what we're doing is we're doing an approach where we're talking about it. We're trying to talk about it rationally or using our logical mind, but we also hold on to like the unknown. And we talk about the actual things which we see. And that's the quality, that's the frequency, that's a that's a whatever you want to go and describe it. It's a thought form. And when a sincere listener listens to that, they receive that frequency, when they receive that vibration, whatever you want to call it, like they're in that, they, they hear that, that sacred chord, and then they start seeing it in their lives. And that's what happens. So it's like almost like it's irrelevant of what, what we're talking about. It's just the quality in which we're bringing about it, the quality in which the listener has, and then it allows them to go and have experienced more and more, which to me, you know, in my opinion, is an indication of an integration with the deeper level of reality, not necessarily like, you know, the false story, which, which we're told by all of the control systems, but the level beneath it where things connect. Hey, what's going on, Uncle Mike? What's going on, Mark? How are you? How are you today? I'm all right. You're on the road? I'm on the road. I just saw an exit sign for Jekyll Island, and I was like, well, I better give Mark a call. <laughs> are you gonna Are you going to stop by Jekyll Island? Part of me would like to. I would like to. But I'm not quite that free flowing. I got to go to my parents, because I told them I'd be there in a couple hours. So right. I don't know how. I have no idea how far away. I'm, I'm pretty close to the coast. But I'm not more 95, but I don't know exactly where Jekyll Island is is relative. But it's beautiful down here. I like the southeast. I like South Carolina. I like Georgia. I just like the way the air smells. I love that feeling. I I've never been there, but I I feel like. I know the feeling you're experiencing of being somewhere new and, and the wonder. Yeah. Yeah. And especially like, you know, I'm coming out, I'm coming down from PA in Maryland where it's winter at 65 degrees right now. <laughs> nice. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it, it, in my opinion, it's a lot of fun to be like the fish out of water, like to be in the South and not be a Southerner. Right. You know, to be or all of that sort of stuff is kind of fun for me. So yeah, all of that is being on the road is 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 quite enjoyable, particularly the transitions, like going from one place to another. Mm. Have you made any interesting stops yet? Uh, so last night I stayed in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, and I just chose that because. It looked like it was about as far as long as I was going to be able to drive on the first night. And it was a, I don't know if I'd call it a city, but it was the biggest thing off of 95. And that was my 
the entire logic for why I chose it. And then I chose the cheapest Airbnb I could find. And it's a really charming town. Like the houses, the way it was set up, the feel of it. I think there's a college there, so there was a little bit of like a, a youthful energy. People in that, in the, a lot of businesses that cater to, to people in that part of their life. So yeah, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. But I didn't really explore. This is the one thing I did see. So I think there was, there's a river. It's by a river. It might be called the Tar River, T-A-R. And overlooking the Tar River, this one place where they had a whole bunch of brew pubs and, and restaurants, was a tiny home village. And I always love to see tiny home villages. Hmm. Have you ever been to a tiny home village? You know what I'm talking about when I say that. Yeah, they're like little one-room houses that have all the facilities in like one room, right? A tiny home. Uh, yeah, it's a tiny home, but then it's it's uh, a place which is specifically made for tiny homes. So like mm. paths, and, and so it's not just like, oh, I bought a tiny home and I put it in uh, a piece of land way back here. It's a, it's like a community, but it's all tiny homes. Huh. Are they tiny people? <laughs> that I did not anyone and I was looking and it's been my experience so it, I said it's fun to be a fish out of water but when you're a fish out of water and you're a lurker like that doesn't work well <laughs> take yeah. it from me no lurking just keep it keep it moving yeah just keep it moving or you can't or, or, or just don't look obvious like you act like you're tying your shoes right right that's so, a, that's that's about a, that's out of the Uncle Mike playbook to tie your shoes to stare the Tar Tar River. I'm gonna make a wild guess and say that has something to do with the Tar Heels. I would think so. I would think so, but I can't say for certain because I believe the low the the Tar Heels. I believe is a ram as their mascot, but you'll see on on their uniforms that it shows a foot. I think there is a tar. Is there's tar on it? So I don't know how that all connects, but hmm. but I would be. I would assume you're correct. It was. East of where where I was in Rocky Mountains, east of Raleigh and Chapel Hill, where where I believe NC State, UNC, and Duke are. But I'm no expert on college ge geology geography, hmm. but I'm probably better than the average person. Well, it looks like the name got or the river got its name from a, an event in the Civil War where the Confederacy dumped a bunch of turpentine and tar into the river that the Union soldiers were planning on doing something with. So, interesting. Interesting. Yes, very very interesting. And then the So where do we want to begin? Where do we want to begin, Marky? <laughs> I just I like being your uh travel uh buddy here virtually i don't know i mean we could just talk about road signs that you drive by um, all right i saw i saw something which i wish i would have had uh the capability of researching they were built it was on 95 and probably if i were to guess 30 miles south dc maybe 40 miles south of dc so in virginia but still within that northern virginia D.C. suburbs area, and it was the strangest, I couldn't tell if it was a building, a monument, was it going to be a bridge, but it was this large kind of base, like a building which you would walk in, maybe 50 feet across, and it had an enormous 
I mean, it wasn't exactly an obelisk, but it was like a long, a long, very kind of obelisk-like shape protruding out of it, but at a 45-degree angle. And I would say 60 feet, 70 feet in the air, so like seven stories. And I want to know what that was. My guess is it's a monument, but I'm like, what is that a monument to? Huh. I, uh... Maybe near, like, Triangle, Virginia or Quantico, Virginia, if you're looking on a map or anything, because I can't look at anything while I'm driving. They won't let me do that. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'll do my best. I I don't know. There's not a lot to go off of as far as yeah, references. Yeah, I, I know. That, that, that doesn't really give you much, does it? Oh, like, no. Hold on. I think I found it. It says All right. the National Museum of the Marine Corps in Triangle, ah, Virginia. Is that all right? All right. So I bet you that the angle of that oblique is inspired by the angle of the raising of the flag of that famous picture of Iwo Jima. Right. Yeah, that's exactly what it looks like. Is it a sort of slate blue color? Oh no, I drive it. Probably. <laughs> like it was on the other side. I was going it's on the on the eastern side, so closer to the northbound traffic and I was going southbound. But it was certainly striking. So that area right there, that's Quantico, Virginia, correct? Right. And Triangle, uh, Virginia. You, it's also known as Triangle, Virginia. Now if you were to go and if you could pull up the John Smith map of Virginia. All right. Can you pull that up? Yep. Um, and I discovered this playing around with it uh, a long time ago. Um, if you go to the the corners and you you make a diagonals, like from one corner to an, one corner, the other corner to another corner, like this is how you identify the center of any shape. So I wanted to see what the center of the map was, and I believe it crosses an A. There should be an A in the middle. Do you see that A? Yes, and it's okay. That that's the exact center of the map. And it almost looks like, yeah, the river. The river looks like a friggin' triangle. The river, the bay, and yeah, the way, the way this land is situated, it's right on the it, northern half of the Chesapeake Bay, it says on the So this you map. go and you look at it, and it literally looks like, you know, in that map, and that map is, if you were to go and look at a modern satellite of the same, of the same place and just uh, play around with with the orientation of the map so they're facing the same direction, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's a pretty accurate depiction of what was, what was made in, 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 you know, what they say, 1612. But it really does look like a triangle, and then that part of Virginia is known as Triangle Virginia, which is also where Quantico, Virginia, is located. And if, you know, Quantico may sound familiar to some folks because that is where... I don't know if it's the FBI headquarters, but it's, I think it's the FBI training facilities. Mm. And that's, and that's why, and the Marines have a, have a very, have an important connection to Quantico as well, which is why you see the Marine, that Marine monument. But what I believe predates both of those is that was the original training center for the OSS. All in that, all at that same spot, that Uh. same spot which is, for whatever reason, the epicenter of the John Smith map of Virginia. And now we're seeing this, this um, I mean, if, if we're going to be open to the idea, like I can't say this is the case, but I'm certainly open to the idea that 
monuments or shapes which are created in the material world have other purposes, particularly as it relates to subtle energies. Right. Like, I don't know what that thing is, but that would be a thing, in my opinion. And if that's a new concept to people, I would certainly recommend reading uh, a book called Biogeometry, which really gets into it on a small scale. But if you read that book, you could then just expand upon that thought from being these small shapes to much, much larger shapes, and the same truth should hold, should hold water. Do you remember the name of the author for that book, Biogeometry? Uh, I want to say his initials are K-H. And he's Egyptian, so I, it's it's not like a, a first name which rolls off my tongue, my <laughs> my 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 tongue. I want to say, are you able to find it? I'm doing my best with the Google search, but I'm finding a bunch of websites that are just like biogeometry is a master energy science. And so the guy who it begins with, so go look. I, I have one book by him. I mean, I read it years and years ago. I don't think it's titled Biogeometry, but if you type Biogeometry and maybe search for books um, and you look for an author, his name might be Cahill, K-H-A-K-A-H-I-L. You know, that's, that might be it. All right. Well, either way. Either way, if you find it, tell me, because now you got my, you got my, my curiosity piece. I also just got a big cup of coffee, so I'm, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit spun up on caffeine right now. But I think that makes for a good audio podcast because you want you want your host to be full of energy. Cheers to that! I have the same. I got a large coffee. We're sitting here getting all caffeinated up. I I'm wondering, you know, if and I know I don't think you have this off the top of your head, but like. Your best guess, Quantico, where that name comes from, because it just, it sounds very like quantum physics. You know, that's mm. what comes to mind when I think Quantico. When I I would just assume that maybe it was a tribe name or right. maybe like some sort of Algonquin word or something. But that's just a guess. I have absolutely no idea. Can you verify? You've got the you've You're spot on. So it got its name from the Kamal Kakok, which got, you know, retranslated into a thousand different variations of of that. Actually kinda looks like the word Connecticut from my state. Seems like cues were a popular sort of sound that people use. If, if you think it I mean, in my opinion, phonetically the qua is such a like it's the phonetics behind it. There's certain there's certain sounds which are very pleasing. I think the W's, the Q, which Q sounds very W-like, or the L's, like right. with, with the M's, like how they, how those, how those sounds hit at least my ear. I don't know if I'm just being subjective or if that's more objectively true to to, to humans. Like it's very very pleasing. Hmm. Well, and so. That would make sense in my in my opinion, like maybe for if I were to have invent a language or develop a language, I would want to make it at, at least some of the words to be as pleasing as possible, pleasing sounding. I agree. So, Quantico. Another thing that's interesting about it is is Silence of the Lambs was. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> exactly what was in my head when you were going there. So we're going to go with Silence of the Lambs. What are your thoughts on Silence of the Lambs? I've seen it 
several times when it was on television, but I never quite watched it. Oh wow! Through and through, wow. it was always on TV when I was like younger, and I would watch it for five minutes and then realize what I was watching and change the channel. <laughs> so, why, why would you change it? Why, when you say realize what you're watching, if you didn't want to see it? Yeah, I had, and I, I almost still do. I think it's not as serious anymore. But when I was younger, I had a pretty big aversion to scary movies. My cousins. Right, so. my Well, yeah. Well, my cousins who, there's quite an age gap between me and the majority of my cousins. They're all older than me. When I was growing up, they forced me to watch the movie Chucky. And that that pretty much left a bad taste in my mouth, and I never wanted to watch a horror movie ever again. So, yeah, that was kind of why I avoided Silence of the Lambs. I mean, and, and rightfully so, particularly the horror genre. Uh, for anyone, you know, there's a part of us, whatever we look at, there's a part of our, our consciousness which takes it literal. There is a part of it. So every time you watch something, like there's a part of you that thinks that's really happening to you. And like, oh, I don't, of course I know it's a movie. Mike, you know, that's ridiculous. I'm like, well, then why is your heart beating fast? Why is your stomach got, why is your stomach got butterflies in it? Because if you know it's all a bunch of bullshit, then your body, your body would respond that way. Your body responds that way because there's a part of, of you know, whether you want to call it your, your arm brain complex, but it takes it literally. Now, if you take that fact and then you apply it to a consciousness level, which is definitely pre-adolescent, I mean, that's, that's psychological trauma, that's psychological terror. So, of course you, I mean, of course you should have a natural aversion and probably even stranger is if one does not have a natural aversion to that. But, but yeah, Silence of the Lambs, where you fell into that, you're saying fell into that, into that scope. Right. So I remember Silence of the Lambs probably came out, if I were to guess, in 1997. Okay. Go and see if I'm accurate. And the reason I say that, because I know I was, college and I was either a freshman or a sophomore in college because uh, I remember seeing it in the movie theater so I was I was a little bit older when I first saw it but I my father and my sister used to make me watch horror films and I couldn't see it I remember watching a movie called Blood Sucking Freaks with them like seriously this is what you're showing me I'm eight I don't want to see this that is the most that is the strangest coincidence ever so I was listening to a comedy podcast last night that I like and they mentioned that movie. And I never what heard of that movie be? before, but they had a similar, like, yeah, somebody made me watch that movie. It was gross. <laughs> and now you're yeah. referencing it. Yeah, that's a very obscure, that's an obscure rep movie. Right. Uh, it was probably the golden age of horror, like, you know, in the mid-'80s, but it was a B-horror film. Yeah. Um, so so I did, that's funny that that, that came up. Um but back to Silence of the Lambs. I, I know I read, I read Thomas Harris, I believe, is the author. And I may not have read Silence of the Lambs, but I may have read the sequel, which was called uh, Hannibal. And I read it in my early 20s before I really had an appreciation, I think, of everything which Thomas Harris, like the depth of his work and maybe what he's exposing. But even still, that movie, like, you could watch it again, and um, there's definitely a lot of interesting pieces you could pull out. Scenes from Baltimore, 
Kentucky, if I recall, there was a character by the name of Moffat. That always stuck out to me, Moffat, M-O-F-F-E-T-T. And Moffat Field, if my memory is correct, is the name of the complex in just outside of San Francisco where you have Singularity University and maybe where like the Google headquarters is. But there's this correlation with Moffitt there. My sense, once I delved in deeper to B.S. Skinner, I had this, I was like, I think that the, 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 the antagonist in, in, in Silence of the Lambs went by the moniker of Buffalo Bill and he would skin his victims. And I also had the sense there was a lot of like implied similarities to B.F. Skinner. He was also a, he was, he was a cross-dresser. And this came out like the early 90s when, you know, prior to 10 years ago, all things related to trans was very, very like three standard deviations from, from mainstream thinking. Like, you know, if you go back to 1992, you'd be like, yeah, so be a drag, uh, drag queen children's happy hour at your local elementary school or, or library. Like that would have blown the minds of people in 1992. But that character, Buffalo Bill, this who skins everyone. He also was a cross-dresser at the time. There's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting things that, that, that are in the background of that movie. So, yeah, so we, we started that from Quantico. So, so let me go back to you. What were you going to go and say about Quantico and Silence of the Lambs? Well, I was going to bring it up to get your thoughts on it because I suspected you would have some stuff to say. But, no, I, I, like I said, I've never seen it fully i'm aware of like the tropes from the movie like the the part about put the lotion on the skin you know that whole thing right and uh, and yeah buffalo bill i forget what movie it is where they i think it's joe dirt or something it's like a comedy movie where joe dirt gets like tangled up with uh hannibal lecter somehow so I think through that movie, I got a good taste of what happened. So you, got, you got a flavor through, through yeah. the, the, the spade, the spade. Uh, um, so, all right. So but back to B.F. Skinner, though, because I feel like, so, go ahead. Okay, yeah, that's exactly where I wanted to go. And, and to be quite honest, it has been a while since I was making those correlations, but I think I can pull it up. So Hannibal Lecter, who is, so there are two, there, there were, two bad guys. They said that Buffalo Bill was the primary antagonist. That's not really the case. Hannibal Lecter was. But Hannibal Lecter was a, a psychiatrist who was also a cannibal, and he was locked up in a Maryland hospital for the criminal insane. And then the FBI went to him because they wanted to understand or have his insights into a series of gruesome murders. And the guy who was doing the gruesome murders was this, the Buffalo Bill character. So the, so I just, so those are the two characters. So where I linked them, I was like, was, well, what if they're one and the same? So we have this brilliant psychiatrist who was, who was psychopathic. And then you also had this, you had the, the Buffalo, the Buffalo Bill serial killer who was literally making skin suits. That's what he was doing. He was finding obese women, starving them, 
so that their skin became very loose, and then he would murder them and then use their skin to, to make clothes. Right? <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Your cousins are like, hey, Marky, how about you watch this film? <laughs> All right, I'm entering to Florida. All right. So, um, so if you look at, if you think about that, and, and I, I guess this is where, this is, there was one line, this is where all of this came from, because B.F. Skinner, well, first off, like, let's talk a little bit about, like, B.F. Skinner, who and what he is. So, you want to share, like, kind of what your thoughts are on him? Well, he definitely has a sort of feeling when you look at his picture that isn't, like, friendly or approachable. I'm, I'm sure there's other pictures of him, but this picture, he looks very, uh, sort of, I don't know, almost very cynical, which, and, and clinical, rhymes with that. I mean, it's kind of this cynicism through the clinical field that this psychological flavor, or this, this type of flavor of psychology that he helped develop, it's very clinical, right? It's, it's almost inhuman. You know, people are just machines, made of, uh, you know, organic material who behave a certain way and we can analyze their behavior. That's that's kind of like my take, my two cent take on Skinner. But the other thing that I think is important for our conversation, B.F. Skinner was born in Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. And grew up in Trenton. Wow. That's why I got it. That's why I started delving in deeper when I was doing, when I was first into the uh, getting into my Scranton research, and I was looking at all of the all of the people who have a connection to Scranton. When I saw B. F. Skinner, so I uh, B. F. Skinner is kind of considered the the father of um, behaviorism, right? Which is very close, uh, very parallel to like Pavlov and conditioned response, just as what you're saying is understanding there is a part of the human being which is like an automaton. Right. The non-physical like world of consciousness is a phrase I'm seeing here. And Or I'm sorry, became, the physical world of, of consciousness would be more what you're talking about. And he looked at the human being just as what you're saying. They're very... They're very... A human being can be... And their, their actions can become very predictable based upon certain, you know, conditioned responses and all sorts of different things like that. And if you go and you read about B.F. Skinner, particularly from um, a lens of, I mean, maybe this would be like pop psychology, like Psychology Today magazine and stuff like that, and, 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 and counselors and, and psychologists, he tends to be... There, from what I gather, there are two kind of schools of thought. Like, uh, one, he was genius, and he, he added so much to the understanding of, of the inner world of the human being. And then the other school of thought is like this dude was a friggin' monster. It was a friggin' monster. And, and he, one of the reasons what they say is this thing called the Skinner box, which supposedly was only used on animals, but there is a famous picture of his child being in a Skinner box and, and you know, the thought is, like, was he putting his kids in the Skinner box? Wow. But anyway, so anyone who, this, this has been my experience, my opinion, and I would say that this holds true to me as well. Anyone who gets, 
who is really who has insight and knowledge into the inner workings of the human psyche or the inner world, they tend to do it to figure out what the hell's going on in their own head. What's going like they want to really it uh, it begins mostly like from a selfish level to better understand oneself. And we we look at that with Skinner and from what I gathered, he was very effeminate and rather intellectual at a time and in a place where that was not necessarily, you know, something that was looked up upon. You know, he's in a coal mining town, and he's kind of a pretty boy. And and I remember getting this, and this is kind of where I, I started thinking about that whole cross-dresser thing with Buffalo Bill, because I read this one thing, it was like a biographical sketch on Skinner. I was doing all this research on Skinner, and it, it made, like, I couldn't get much, much deeper into it. It was like one or two sentences, but it was talking about how when he was younger, he was, like, maybe very interested in keeping, uh, like, in manicures or in his hair or just something which would, you know, be thought of as, as maybe more of an effeminate type of, of, of quality, particularly in, in a coal mining town of, 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 of Pennsylvania. So maybe I'm reading a little bit more into it. Maybe not. I don't know. But he seems he seems to have a true hatred towards human beings, based upon based upon what he the the work which he came out of, like really being able to control people and really being able to control behavior and all this sort of stuff. And then from his work, his work was one half one half of the equation, which then kind of flowed in parallel to all of the cybernetics and psychic surgery, which was happening in the 50s and 60s and like the Jose Delgado and all of that sort of stuff. Those guys were a little bit more like physical, like drilling into people's heads and putting electrodes in the brains, but coupling that with then learning about condition response with with B.F. Skinner and all of this about creating feedback loops and ways to to predictively control both the individual and then ultimately the mass. So B.F. Skinner is very much a symbol of like elite control mechanisms. Mm. And that's funny you use that word control mechanism. Like he said, his work definitely was about figuring out the conditional responses that you can inspire, but it seems like from what I'm just kind of reading here that he was very obsessed with building contraptions and gadgets. You know, he just seemed to have a mechanical mindset from a young age. He built a device that separated ripe berries and he would gather elderberries with his friend Doc, not not something you would expect, you know, the average male during that time period in America to be doing, you know, gathering berries. It's not, like you said, a little more feminine. Not that there's anything wrong with gathering berries. I've done it a couple times myself. But, yeah, he, he definitely had this sort of mechanical approach to the world. And you can see that with this pigeon-guided missile system that he <laughs> worked on with the u.s navy project pigeon he was an atheist as well it says but he he i mean it just seems like he didn't value or like life very much if his idea was to put 
pigeons in the Kona or in the nose of a missile and have the pigeons guide the missile. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. There was, there's definitely something that's kind of off or, or, or sick or unhuman. And very often people would reach that. I mean, I guess maybe you could be born that way, but you also, you learn that by having experiences during your first seven years where you were treated, you know, as less than human or unhuman. Like that's a, it's a very, you know, there's a, there's a, a degree of predictability of what the personality of the individual may, may turn out as if, you know, they've been at the receiving end of really inhumane treatment. It's funny how this is, how, how this, these, these, themes are starting to show up in our, our conversation because we started with like, you know, you being a child or being forced to watch, being forced to watch Silence the Lambs where, you know, we're talking about about childhood psychology or, or at least how childhood affects your childhood experiences help create the complex or the internal structure which then creates our psychological profile once we become a until right. we learn to deconstruct those. And right. so if you don't ever consciously learn to deconstruct your psychological profiles, well, then you become the automaton, which is exactly what, what the whole Skinner stuff is about, is like having people never move out of the automaton phase. And that's very much like, you know, what everything is within our, our world right now is to keep people in this automaton predictive predictive sort of response you know you go and you see this you look at the you get the commercial you get the and you go drink your coca-cola you get the the like on your facebook it's that's all skinner stuff all of the the dopamine facebook feedback loops that all go begins with skinner right so okay so now where, where, where do we go with him where, where are you curious to run with because i'm loving this well, I definitely, I think it's worth noting that he was buried in a place I think we've talked about before here on the show. The first rural cemetery in the United States, famously where all the Boston Brahmins are buried. It's kind of near, I think it's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but he was a Harvard guy. So I guess yeah, he was a Harvard guy, wasn't he? Spent the rest of his life up there in Massachusetts, but yeah, originally from Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. Well, and Susquehanna, Pennsylvania is also significant. That is where uh, Joseph Smith had did had his experience in the Susquehanna River and wrote the Book of Mormonism. Really. So if you go and you look at, you can search LBS restoration site okay. or the Joseph Smith restoration site. And there's a big, I, I know we've talked about this before. There's a big, there's a big thing you could go to and I'd highly recommend it. That's Susquehanna, Pennsylvania. It's where the Susquehanna river go. It dips down into Pennsylvania from New York state. And then it comes back up uh, into New York state continues going west until it um, hits like Binghamton and then it takes a, a turn and then goes back south down into into Pennsylvania. But it's that dip, that horseshoe, which is where Susquehanna, Pennsylvania is and where the Joseph Smith site is and apparently where, where B.F. Skinner is. 
not a particularly populated area. Right. Yeah, that is that is a very, <laughs> very dense, densely mountainous, forested north corner of Pennsylvania. The whole northern part of Pennsylvania is very mountainy. But I'm seeing online there are these big statues, sort of like maybe is Christ or God putting his hands on Joseph Smith and his son or his brother. John the Baptist. It oh, almost okay. looks like it almost looks like he's they're blowing him, doesn't it? <laughs> like it's got a. I mean, maybe that's just me. Maybe that was just me. But the first time I saw that, I'm like, that's a little bit homoerotic, if you ask me. Wow. Um, I think so. I go on. I think there's definitely some trickery and buggery going on with the whole Smith clan, especially once they leave the East Coast and get out there in, in Utah. I've spoken with, with some very, like, with some very, very traditional Mormons, so not necessarily the followers of what Mormonism are, is today. And by no means am I an expert, you know, but the way they talk about who and what Joseph Smith was and how he and what he the original book of mormon which he transcribed is very different than how things are now i've got no idea like i just kind of know more so like the, the the touch points and like this happened here and then but i the, the thing is 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 very intriguing i find the whole joseph smith thing very very intriguing um but i want to tell you this one kind of funny story so i've been to the restoration site I want to say three times. Okay. Every single time I've gone up to Cooperstown, and in two, and let me just say this: in two point seven miles, I'm going to have I got an exit. So I once I get close, I'm going to have to start paying attention to what I'm doing. But so it is this this restoration site is in the middle of nowhere. You go up, I, I want to say maybe it's eighty one or eighty three. I always get those confused. And then you take a small exit off of that, and you're driving on this very, very like two-lane road in the middle of nowhere, and you come across the site, which is really, really significant in the history of the Church of Latter-day Saints. And they have, as you said, this statue that's on the outside, and it's towering. It's like maybe 12 feet tall, and once a year, they wash it. And of the three times I went, I once arrived. At the exact, it probably takes an hour to wash it. They have scrub brushes and people are washing it. I, it was a big deal for them, like the, the washing of it. All right, so 295 West. All right. And I thought that the timing of arriving at that, I just thought it was kind of cool. And every time I've gone up there, the, the folks are fantastic. I would highly recommend anyone, if they find themselves in the area, to go take that trip. All right, okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna stop talking for a minute because there's a lot going on here, and I'm not certain what I'm doing. So All right. uh, it'll probably just be a minute. I'm uh, I'm watching so, you from the radar. You're in Jacksonville. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you make it all the way down to Florida so fast? Jeez, I thought you were in North Carolina this morning. Well, they're pretty close. So three. Wow. Uh, all right, give me one more moment yeah, before no I get on. So All no. right. Thank you for tuning in, folks, to your handbook for the apocalypse live is, is on the thing? road. Nope, I go straight. Don't you, like... <laughs> I just laugh, like, when you're driving, you're all like, do I go this way, that way, to get to all... I get visually confused very... Um, 
very easily with when there's a lot going on. If I'm in a if I'm in a space which has a lot of chaos on it, like like a home space, like it's very very difficult for me to concentrate. They've got like all of these road close signs. It's under a lot of construction right here, and so there's a lot of chaos. And so talking, driving, new place is testing my. If, BF Skinner, if he could put one of those pigeons in my car right now, I would need one. <laughs> All right. Well, no worries. We edit. So if you want to take a little pause, I, I don't want to just, you know, talk and, and distract you. So I I think I I think I may be through the meat grinder. Hold on. Dun, dun, dun. All right, perfect. I'm on this road for another 13 miles. So cool. All right, I made that. Right on. Thank you. Thank you for the support. No problem. No problem. And Jacksonville, Florida is very, very watery. You're driving by some of America's greatest Everglade waterways down there. He said it smells good. Uh, it's, it's beautiful around here. I, I, I wish I could spend more time. I think I'm close to St. Augustine. I've never been to St. Augustine, but I would love to check it out. Shout out to my buddy Chris. He just moved down there last year, actually spent... I believe most of his life in Connecticut. Now he's in Florida. Typical story. Typical story. What? <laughs> Connecticut people moving to Florida. Really She's anywhere. Nobody. Cold. Nobody stays in Connecticut unless you're unless you're making you know two hundred grand plus a year. Yeah. No. Two hundred grand gets you not gets you like a, like like a, it gets you nothing in Connecticut. Okay. You need to be making two point five million a year to to live in Connecticut. <laughs> yeah, so that just shows people how financially savvy I am. I don't even once you get past a certain number, it's all the same to me. But yeah, yeah, Connecticut is not a place uh, for the middle class. So a lot of a lot of my friends have have moved elsewhere. I actually, do a podcast now with someone I met through podcasting who moved. From Connecticut to Portland, and yeah, Portland, of, Oregon. Yeah, a lot of expats, we'll call them, from Connecticut. Gotcha. <laughs> but all right, so where were where were we before I had to go through the the meat grinder? Just kind of talking about BF Skinner. I had a I had an, a weird <laughs> week, so I get I feel a little unprepared, but I do have uh, I do have a lot of places to to go into Michael Hoffman's work because a lot of what you're talking about with BF Skinner is kind of like this scientific elite that Hoffman warns against in the first totally totally so let, let me say one thing before we transition to Hoffman the 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 screenshot which I sent you there was the Super Bowl was what two days ago or whatever that was and there the Super Bowl obviously is I mean, it's a lot of different things, but one of the things is it's a showcase for certain com for commercial and so forth. And there was a Mercedes Benz commercial yes. that showed during the Super Bowl, and what they use in the backdrop of that Mercedes Benz commercial is the imagery of 
the Veterans Memorial Bridge crossing over the Susquehanna River. So this is from Columbia, Pennsylvania to Wrightsville, Pennsylvania, right at the 40th parallel. It's one of, it's beautiful bridge. Like there are such things as beautiful bridges and this is a graceful bridge. There's a bow to it. I love driving across it. I know it very, very well. So the fact that that showed itself, like if you think about what the, what the Susquehanna or what the Super Bowl represents, the amount of eyeballs who are on it, like I always see that as a good sign, but then I want to add one more layer into the synchromysticism with it. Probably about a year ago, I would say it may have been like about February of last year is when the, I think it was a Netflix series called Loki. I watched that. I watched that because someone brought to my attention that Loki had, um, are you familiar with the show Loki? I'm familiar. The character is, it may be like a spinoff from like maybe one of the movies or something. I don't know. I think it's the same actor who played Loki in, is, is it like one of those superhero movies? But they did like maybe 10 episodes. But what was so interesting about that show was it dealt with um, timeline manipulation. Okay. And they introduced this concept of there being certain events which take that take, I don't know, like life or people off of what they called the primary timeline. And it was this behind the scenes agency's job to go and uh, stop those events. So they would have, they would be like, oh, one of these events happened. We need to go there right away. And we got to go and, and arrest all the people or shoot them or something so that the main timeline stays, stays intact. So that being said, that's kind of like part of the premise, and Loki's one of those characters. He was a guy, Loki, the king of mischief, if you will. He was one of the characters who was about changing the timeline. So all of that being said, the reason I'm bringing it up was in the backdrop of this Loki show, they have more or less TV screens which have like a ticker tape, like what you would expect to see at the bottom of like CNN telling like breaking news. But right. on this show, Loki, it was listing where all of like any of these events, I forget what they called these events, which take things off of the timeline, these anomalies. And it listed Wrightsville, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Wrightsville, Pennsylvania is where this bridge is. It's at the 40th parallel. It's right where the Susquehanna River is. It's where the where the where the Civil War more or less turned its tide, and it's you know the epicenter of a lot of my work. And so that that was why I, I watched Loki show because I'm like, wow, let me go see this. All these people brought it to my attention, and now we're seeing it one year later, and now we're seeing it in the context of this of this Mercedes Benz commercial and the Super Bowl. So, you know. <clears throat> We can look at that a lot of different ways, whether you want to look at this as the Fuhrer and, you know, his Mercedes-Benz, or you want to go look at this as, you know, what Mercedes-Benz represents in terms of class and luxury. But no matter what, like, Wrightsville, PA just hit again on that in the, in the subliminal space in, in the collective mind. Mm, right. And I'm looking at the show right now. It's are they called time variants? Is that what they are yeah, trying to yeah, stop? Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's what I think that's what it would be called. I mean, mm. I only saw like two episodes, so I by no means am I am I an expert. When did it come? When was it? So, did you are you looking at it on Wikipedia? Yeah, Does it tell when it was released? 
It's from June 9th, 2021 to present time, and the main character is Tom Hiddleston. Right. It's interesting that they say that Loki is, uh, his gender is fluid according to the Time Variance Authority, uh, which is the, I don't know, the government (laughs) in this. The Time Variance Authority, so TVA. The TVA was responsible for, as I said, like if there was ever one of these occurrences which would take humanity off of the control timeline, they were the ones who did who managed that. They would be kind of similar to uh, what we think of Men in Black. Hmm. You know, the secret right. organization that comes in and they clean everything up and they get things that, back to, oh my to normal. So that, all right, you just saved me so hard, Mike, because, all right, yesterday I was listening to Peter Lavenda, which, you know, very well known, but he, he was talking about the Salem witch trials and how they connect to the Council of Nine. And he mentioned this very famous, you know, historical character that I remember learning about in school when they taught us about the Salem witch trials. This woman named Tichaba, who kind of gets portrayed like an African-American slave, which in reality, she was a Arawat Indian from Puerto Rico, where the Spanish had, you know, come i believe it was puerto rico or it was in the you know caribbean maybe caribbean. even florida so the arawat you know they were pretty much decimated by the spanish and she was a survivor and was sold to the massachusetts colony and the voodoo dolls that she was playing with basically stirred up all this hysteria to fever pitch cuz it already had been you know brewing for several years and her, you know, voodoo doll got everybody so afraid. And I think it's because it was so, you know, foreign. It was magical, but it was a foreign system of magic, you know. And anyways, that's another story. And she gets arrested and put in jail and released sometime later when the governor of Massachusetts finally put an end to the whole thing. And Is that Sewell? Is Sewell the name of the, the, the... No, that was the judge, I believe, of the... Right. I think it was uh, Winthrop because his son was. Winthrop. Yeah. Winthrop the Younger was the guy we've spoken about before who yeah. helped, helped end the witch trials in Connecticut. But so anyway, so Tichaba, why this stood out when you said men in black is because Tichaba, after she was released from jail, was like kind of a figure in this community. And there were stories and people learned things from her. And one of the stories that she talked about were. The, the men in black would come to save her one day. I guess this was what she would say to herself in jail. And Peter Lavenda, when he kind of connects is like the men in black that she talks about to the men in black of modern times. And he huh. says that even in those times, the men in black were kind of out of place. They dress in from a time period that's not succinct. So like nowadays, if we see a men in black, they might be dressed in the garb of like 1940s or 50s America, or at least that's how it was in the 70s, right? So maybe now it would be like they'd be dressed like they're from the 70s. So the men in black, when they show up, they're kind of almost like time travelers. They're like out of sync somehow. Right, right. So or I, they're, they're subtly distinguishable, like they're as, as being different. Right, right. 
So, and it was just so astounding to hear uh, a reference to men in black in colonial America. And, uh, you know, Peter Lavenda, take it for what it is. I don't, I haven't listened to many of his interviews, but yeah, I want to follow up on that and see what else I can find. That is, that is really interesting. Have you ever heard, have you ever listened to any of Jan Irvin's work on the Salem witch trials? No, no, I'm very familiar with Jan, but no, I've never... so interestingly, I remember listening to his work. Now I'm coming up to another one of these exits, so where am I going? Don't you like when you're pulling up to an exit and you're behind a truck and you can't see over the truck? The you're worst. like, I want to read the sign. I want to read the sign. <laughs> I just want to read the sign, truck. So I want to take 21B. And I don't know if that's the first one or second one. For all so you Gematria listeners, mark that off on your bingo card, 21B. 21B, ladies and gentlemen. 21B. So I'm going west, so that's the first one. Okay, so 21B is... Because sometimes, like, B is the first one, and sometimes A is the first one. There's not a consistency. So Jan did... Oh, this is what I was going to say. So I've listened to Jan for a really, really, really long time, off and on. And probably the last time I listened to him was about four or five years ago. And he was doing this whole thing into this whole series into the Salem witch trials. And, and I don't know, I, I'm curious if that dovetails with what Peter was talking about. But a lot of what, what Jan was, talk, was saying, like, they were all, it was a crypto-Jew, more or less like a false flag storyline that shocked the colonies at the time, but it was all just a bunch of, of propaganda to get everyone all worked up. Interesting. But it's been so long. I mean, one, I could be, I could, I could be mis, misstating that or maybe just getting it partially right. But I remember being fascinated by his story or his, his conclusion or his analysis, because one, he tends to be re- really, really detailed with his analysis. He's like, this is why I say this. And he goes and he cite, he's able to cite everything. And it was a storyline which um, I had never heard before. So I just want to throw that out there. Yeah. No, and I definitely, I'll look into that. The reason why, another reason why it was so significant that I listened to Peter Lavenda last night was because initially when I had first heard the whole little blurb about a Connecticut governor being an alchemist. I had forgotten who the guest was, but I remembered it was the higher side chats. Well, it was Peter Lavenda. Cause I, you know, re-listened to that episode and heard him say it. And one of the things that he noted that we kind of talked about a couple times on the show already is just how frequent or how, you know, commonplace alchemy was in the colonies and, and ceremonial magic too, which he talked about and how, you know, kind of going along with what you're saying where it might've been just this whole hysteria or even a psyop, there were plenty of people, you know, using this type of practice, these dark magic practices. And as usual, you know, the common people get uh, stirred up in the middle of it, but, their blindfold remains on, you know, so they don't, they don't ever give up the hoodwink. It's, it's this, these kind of secrets stay within the, 
the higher order of groups. I guess that's just my conspiratorial. Uh, oh, you, you, you're, get, you're getting so prepped for your Hoffman interview. <laughs> Do you guys have a date set? No, I, I, he told me to, he told me to basically let him know when I finished reading the book. So that's excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, okay. So, do we want to then go and transition this? Because it sounds like you had some things to say about Hulk. Yeah, just a, a few things. I, I do a show, like I had mentioned, with, with a friend who lives in Oregon and actually a friend who lives in Florida. It's called Illuminati Confirmed, and we just talk about stuff more candidly, and, and we're having guests on now. But it, it, we kind of joke around about Nicolas Cage being in the Illuminati, and mm-hmm. I... Definitely didn't see this coming, but The Wicker Man has Nicolas Cage in it. The Wicker Man is a big part of Michael Hoffman's book in a way. He at least mentions it on the back cover and in the, it's one of the chapters, I guess. They're not really chapters, but yeah. So that's of interest, came up synchronistically. I got to watch it now because we're going to comment on it. The, the idea is Nicolas Cage has had so many weird movies that we could probably do a podcast on every episode and talk about a different movie. So it, it, the show is very loose and free form right now. I'm not sure how many movies we're actually going to do this with, but the goal is for all three of us to watch The Wicker Man and then talk about it. Go and... Um... What do you and, think? Watch the movie first or read the book first? Well, first off, which Wicker Man are you going to watch? You're going to watch the Nicolas Cage one or are you going to watch the original one? Oh, so is he talking about the original one in this? Well, the Nicolas Cage one is a remake. So, okay. In a way, so it's both of them. I have not seen the Nicolas Cage one. It is universally panned as one of the worst movies ever. <laughs> but, I mean... Take that for what it's worth. I've seen a lot of movies that are universally panned. I would recommend, I've seen the first Wicker Man one, and it is, I think it's a, a very, it's a very good movie in terms of understanding, of understanding like what, it's very similar to Rosemary's Baby. Did you see Rosemary's Baby? No, but I've heard a lot about it in the way that it's like a ritual on film. So both Rosemary's Baby and Wicker Man, they both were horror genre films of the early 70s. Okay. And they're not necessarily, horror might not be the right word, because now when we hear horror, we think of gore. And it's not so, I don't, they're not so much about that as much as they're like suspenseful, but often with, you know, maybe... Where are you going to go, buddy? Maybe uh, a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit more eerie or, or, or mystical. So, but the point with the Wicker Man, the film, and, and Rosemary's Rosemary's Baby is they both deal with this idea of an entire group of people working together with one target. Like it's very much like gang stalking. Hmm. It's real. So Wicker Man is, is basically a gang stalking film where you see what gang stalking looks like before anyone's ever heard the phrase gang stalking. But then it is it, it it's not only gang stalking, but it's gang stalking done in such a way 
that the victim of the gang stalking sacrifice willingly sacrifices themselves. Wow. And the purpose, and this is, uh, Roz Ben talks about this all the time when he talks about like some of the higher nefarious orders. He's like, everything they do is in harmony with omniversal law. Right. So it's like, if you want to go and you want to have a sacrifice, you need to, what, and if you do not want to be, if you are, so this is the idea behind it, if you are in harmony with, with omniversal law, well, then you do not incur karma. Right. Like karma is like, you know, that's the, the that's what, what the, 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 the blowback. But if you can go through, um, and this is where I think Michael Hoffman gets into it, is if you could go and get people, like you're telling them what you're going to do, and you create, it, you create the perspective of what's happening in such a way that the person thinks that what they're doing is for the highest good, well, then, you know, then, then you know, the, the, the perpetrators are in harmony with omniversal law. But what you see in this movie, Wicker Man, is, like, how it's done against the best interest of the individual who is on the receiving end. And that's the same thing that happens in in Rosemary's Baby, where Rosemary herself is she does not realize realize that she is on the receiving end of gang stalking done by a satanic cult. And and what they what what is unique in both of these films, and what I, what Hoffman picks up on is the fact like, hey, this isn't movies, this is just the way how things are manipulated, is that all of these different players, all of these different people are in cahoots together, and the victim would never have guessed in a million years that these people are working together. But you would have guessed that the bus driver and my doctor are actually in the same cult, that they're telling me things so that, you know, I come to these conclusions. Yeah, that whole concept of gang stalking, it, it never, whenever I heard that word, I never quite understood it the, in, a, in the way that I do now after what you just said. Because it, it is very, I mean, that seems like what these secret society groups have been doing for thousands of years is using that advantage of being a secret group you know and being able to pass information you know then you're you and you have you know seven enemies and you maybe you've only seen the face of one of them you know and, and right, that's right. a terrifying thing to come to grips with and i think what's so dastardly about our true crime genre and the whole you know murder fiction porn that's all over the mainstream culture is that you never get anything close to that. I mean, maybe in some cases, but usually, typically, the archetype is lone nut who acts out of his own psychopathy. You know, when in most cases, I would say there's probably more than one influence going on. You know, it's, it's not just, you know, this guy was born a little weird or this female was born a little weird and then she did some crazy stuff. You know, it, it's... I think in most cases we're dealing with uh, very organized 
very organized events. All right, hold on. Is this my exit? No. Give me one more second. Sure. And I think I should be, there should be something coming up. Every time this construction is where my exit ramps are, <laughs> so it requires twice as much focus. Well. Um, all right, here we go. Awesome. How deep, how far are you, along are you in psychological warfare? So I'm on page 40-something, so I'm not okay. too far in. And so, so Hoffman goes into that a lot, and the idea which you're just talking about uh, of how stories are presented and then what's actually going on behind the scenes. I want to go back to what you are saying about about gang stalking. So I don't think I've ever used the word gang stalking to describe that scenario. It never occurred to me. It just popped in my head as, as we're talking because normally gang stalking is presented in the, you know, in this, this kind in a different context. Yeah. Like but a targeted individual. In, yeah. Like a targeted individual, which, which is still like a fair term to use. But, but it, here's the thing. And I don't know how far, I don't know how far disinfo this might be. And maybe that's why this is the way it is. But a lot of the stuff that you learn about when you start researching that subject, it seems almost, almost like, paranoid to the point where it turns you off like you like hold on for a sec all right there we go repeat what you just said my headphones fell off my head oh okay um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I think what really turned me away from researching too far into the ti gang stalking subject in part in the first place is a lot of it feels like so personal almost to like a a extreme paranoia degree that it's very off-putting. I, I would agree with that. I think that I would say both the whole idea, like a lot of the, a lot of the information put out there about gang stalking and targeted individuals definitely bumps up against, uh, uh, paranoid delusions. Right. But, and it could, but there's probably, some, some truth into it and one cannot read it if they're going to get really deep into it it's going to affect your psyche it's going to affect your psyche and it's the same thing with MK Ultra. and I, I personally think that that's part of the, the, the that's built into the revelation is that if you're going to go and research it too much it's going to, it's going to at least play mind games with you we we use the term gang stalking as it referred in in Wicker Man, which I don't know if that phrase has been used describing that that movie before, but just as a general term that that when a group of of people who you would not you would not think are connected are working together to go and create a ruse. So that there is a false story, but then there's another story which is true embedded within it. And you could even say, I, I, I would argue and say that all false flags, all of like the propaganda, all of the, the, the psyops, those are, those are like uh, wide-scale gang-stalking scenarios where the targeted individual is all of the, you know, the mainstream America to right. begin with. 
Right. You know, that's the real gang stalking. That's it's not you so much as an individual. It's the entire culture. Like, you know, you could go and say what's happening right now with 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 the with the illness that's spreading across America or across Earth. Like that's just one large gang gang stalking operation. Definitely. Yeah, can be interpreted that way. And then there are levels to it, too, because as soon as you step out from that uh, subset of people who are under this oppression, now they hit you with another type of oppression. You know, they like with with, you know, censorship, black blackmail, even like, you know, what happened to Dr. Andrew Wakefield? Where What happened to Dr. Andrew Wakefield? So he was, uh, you know, big proponent, anti-stabby, jabby, you know. Yep. Not that this is going on YouTube. We don't have to censor ourselves. He was anti-vaccine. And, uh, and yeah, they basically discredited him, even though he, you know, was a very prominent surgeon, had, you know, very high degree of education. But because he stepped outside of the medical narrative, he was basically discredited to the point where now he can no longer work in that field. So he had his licenses revoked. Did that happen recently? I don't follow it that closely. I remember when when Wakefield was he was getting a lot of publicity or a lot of a lot of traction in probably April 2020. Mm. And not and and what what I always thought was so great about him was he challenged germ theory. Right. That that's my personal thing, which I find is interesting. Is like people will go arguing back and forth whether or not like you know it exists or not. I love the questions like, is germ theory even real? You know, those are the layers. But but okay, we got a little bit off off um, the topic from where we're talking with with understanding gang stalking. I want to go and bring this all the way back to where we began with Hoffman. I believe the reason why Hoffman, what you know, wants you to read the book, and then also why you should watch, watch um, Wicker Man, and I would recommend watching the first one, is because it takes these ideas. But you know, we're uh, we're familiar with a lot of this stuff, and maybe he just wants to make certain that you're not just some some greenhorn. But you can go and see, like this is how it happens. This is what it happens, and then to be able to go. And take that, once you understand that as a modus operandi that could be used, then you can begin to go and and go out into your actual world, the actual life which is happening, and at least ask the question, is that what's going on right now? And I'm going to put a comment and say one more thing before I stop uh, talking and give you a space, is when we were talking, I don't know, like five, six episodes ago, and when we introduced the idea or discussed the idea of um, discussed the idea of synchronicity being manipulated, right? Like I would say that would also fall within it too, right? You know whether that's done from a higher realm or whether that's done where, like you know, seeming synchronicities occur. Like someone sets it up so that you're like, oh my God, I can't believe this. <laughs> yeah. This is such a coincidence. Right. Right. And, and here's the greatest thing. Let me just say this one last thing. Darren Brown. Do you know who Darren Brown is? Yeah. Is he the, uh, is he kind of like a James Randi mental? Is he kind of like the James Randi type or am I mistaking him? Mm, 
I wouldn't quite say James. He kind of is James Randy in the fact that he's like for expose, but he's not, he Dan doesn't Brown, have James He Randy. wrote the Da Vinci Code, right? No, Dan Brown did. I, you just erased his name. Darren, Darren, Darren Brown. Darren, <laughs> Darren Brown. So Sorry. Darren Brown does, what he does is he shows you how mentalism works. Okay. And he's like, hey, mentalism's a thing. It really works, but it's not magic. It's something else. He does, there's one episode of his show, watching Darren Brown, I'm pretty certain it's Darren Brown, watching his, his some of his specials, and I'm pretty certain you can see them. Uh, they're all on YouTube. You can go and see how gang stalking works. So he has this one this one episode where he goes into this small town. He's a, he's like a well known performer throughout the United Kingdom. That's where his celebrity is particular is highest. Right. Um, he's English, and he goes into some small English town. And he's going to go and do a show, and I think he's there for a couple weeks. And I, I forget the exact details, but he creates, he basically gang stalks the entire, or at least sets in the background in the collective unconsciousness within this small town, all of these subliminal stuff, all of these small things that happen, seemingly unconnected, so that then the town will come and reach on their own conclusion and they would go half the way. Like Darren Brown would go and create 75% of what he wants to happen. And that final 25% is completed by the quote unquote victims of his gang stalking, but he'll call it mentalism. But when you watch that, when you watch that, you put that in context with, with, with the Wicker Man movie and with what Michael Hoffman's saying, and I would even say what you see in the movie The Prestige, you begin to realize that, yes, there is a mystic, there's a mystery, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand, but it can be manipulated so friggin' easily by people who know what they're doing. And they're all the same kind of technique, just expressed a little bit differently. Right. Right, and I think that's that's exactly why fiction and pop culture is what it is to dazzle people away from getting that kind of understanding that Darren Brown, you know, conveys. But yeah, wow. You you got the Darren Brown. He does it like what what so. Darren Brown's audience is a is for mainstream, rational-minded people who still like who who, pro- who probably like like Penn and Teller. Like he's kind of Penn and Teller-ish. Like Penn and Teller, like oh no, this is not magic. I'm just tricking you guys. Right. But can you figure it out? I'm still good at it. He's got that type of vibe. If you could watch him and then also have like the the like a Hoffman or maybe a little bit conspiratorial, then you can gain so much insight into what is possible in terms of manipulation, both very, very personally, but then also seeing it on how it affects us collectively. Right, right. And that's what maybe turns people off from these guys is they're not they're not taking that approach. There's like, see look, magic isn't real, right? Which I feel like is also kind of a a trick because it is yeah you are showing yes, us the yes, mechanics yes. of it but you're also giving us a very watered down version of of 
the mechanics. And, and there's a blending. There's a, there is a mixture of what I'm just going to generally call sleight of hand. So when I say mm-hmm. sleight of hand, I just mean there's trickery. Like there's no magic. It's just like you can't see it happen. And the person so skilled at doing it would never occur to you that they're doing this trick. But then there's also a small percent, which is like that's where the mystery is. That's where the true magic is. But it's unclear like what percent is what. The Darren Brown audience and the way it showed is to really, really, um, in my opinion, like it takes away the magic. It's just like purely rational. All it's all just trickery. And the person who really wants to be open to the magic of it or the mystery of the life experience, they're not going to like the the Darren Brown because it does have a James Randi feel. Like, let me go. It's all just trickery and, and there's nothing real. To, there's no magic at all. So it's this this almost like negative space of if you're open-minded to the fact that there are mysteries and there is a magical element to human experience, you may not want to watch the Darren Brown because it's going to, it's not going to be fun for you because you want to hear about how it's all magic and like, you know, we're getting messages from, from the Pleiades and the person who, who is going to watch that they may have closed off the possibility in their mind that there's some things that your rational mind is not going to be able to explain, such as men in black, showing up in 1625 in the colony of Massachusetts. Like, you know, it's, 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 I think that what you and I are doing right now is we're walking in that very, very strange sort of path, which is somewhere between those two. Absolutely. I think that's, that's the show that we're doing, man. And maybe a good place to stop. Cause I know you're probably getting closer to your your destination but we do have a message from someone all the way in rome italy and i wanted to read it it came in the mailbox a while ago but we haven't done a show in a while and last time we had a lot to talk about so maybe we could read this before we wrap up. please do please do that would be fantastic all right so He says, my brother, hope this finds you well. Please take care of Uncle Mike. He is a national treasure and one of the greats. This came in the day before I drove up to media. So So, I want to pause right now. So am I a national treasure in Italy? Or am I a national treasure? I don't even take an international treasure. Like, you know, I, I'm, susce- I'm, susce- I'm susceptible, I suppose, as anyone else. I'm getting my, my ego rubbed. Okay, that's a sweet word. So, okay, so keep going. So he is uh, actually from the U.S. and moved to Italy. So I think All he right. means you're, you're a national treasure here. Okay. Right, so, so I'm going to go with international treasure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do that. For, there's our Nick Cage tie-in. So go on. Boom. This is Ryan C., a.k.a. Joyful Snake, proud patron, MFTIC Telegram follower, et cetera, et cetera. And he says some nice things to me, which I'm not going to read because uh, I already wrote him back and said thank you very much he says perhaps most important there is something about your show that kicks off synchronicities in those ready to receive them this is true for mftic but especially true for your handbook for the apocalypse and what i noticed is a lot of people that listen to the show 
they take your out and they just call it handbook for the apocalypse. So I think they get it because there it is their handbook for the apocalypse. So they don't have to use the first word there, I guess. But holy shit, I don't know what is happening there, but there is some kind of remarkable magic occurring. And then he goes on to say that Peter Shampoo was a big, and this is where it gets real interesting, Peter Shampoo was a, a big game changer for me. Thank you for giving him an audience. I've never met Peter in person, but he and I are from the same hometown, Springfield, Massachusetts, and I have signed copies of all his books as a direct result of Michael Wan recommending Gaia Matrix to me during a biomancy session. So this is someone. Oh, I know this guy. So you you know this guy. So, I know exactly who it is. So I can't think of his first name, but he's awesome. His name's Ryan. So Yes, it's Ryan, yes. So Peter and I had a number of back and forths, mostly around the fact that Springfield sits smack on the 42nd parallel, the Mystic Highway, as Michael Hoffman refers to it. Now he lives in Rome, Italy, which also sits on the 42nd parallel. So when he realized Rome and Springfield are on the same longitudinal line, it was huge for him. And he went back and looked at Springfield and found out a lot of interesting things. Like, it's the city of firsts. The first automobile, the first motorcycle, the first refrigerator, the first basketball game, and more. It's right on the Connecticut River. And it's particularly interesting that Jack Parsons' parents are actually... Yeah, so Springfield was the home to Jack Parsons' parents... And Jack Parsons was, you know, we know who he was. He kind of... We know Jack Parsons. But he was, his parents were from Springfield, and they were an heir to the Stevens Dure Automobile Company, which was the producer of the first car. And his father, Marvel Parsons, was the heir to the refrigeration company, the that created the first refrigerator. They divorced after Jack's birth and his father returned to Springfield from California. And that's where his kind of story ends. But yeah, the, the other really interesting thing, especially considering what we talked about before is that one of the first witchcraft trials in the new world took place in the Northampton Springfield, Massachusetts area more than 50 years before Salem. The accused was Mary Bliss Parsons. Jack Parsons is a direct descendant of Mary <laughs> Bliss Parsons. And he has archival proof of this. And this is awesome because Ryan also says that he's going to be working on a presentation for this. So everybody listening, oh, stay wow. tuned. I hope Ryan emails us back with, with more. Oh, yeah. Okay, cool. I actually, when I responded, I said, you got to come on the show and talk to us about this. So we'll see what happens. But uh, but yeah, that came in about two weeks ago. And uh, shout out to you, Ryan. I'm excited to see what happens next. And I appreciate you digging up that little fact about Jack Parsons. I remember my conversation with Ryan. It's got to have been at least a year ago. And yeah, that guy... Uh, any person I've ever gotten to do a session with, I, you know, it's always been such a pleasure and everyone's got so much interesting things and, and pieces to add. So I'm glad to hear about Ryan again. And I do want to comment though on his comment about the sh this show that you and I are doing here and it being a catalyst for synchronicity 
within um, a listener, within a listener's life, because I've heard that time and time and time again. And I want to just maybe share what my thoughts are on that. Um, what we do, and and I've heard it not just with our show, but but other sessions I've done with people. And it's not like there's there's like anything magic about me or you. But what we're doing is we're doing an approach where we're talking about it. We're trying to talk about it rationally or using our logical mind, but we also hold on to like the unknown. And we talk about the actual things which we see. And that's a quality. That's a frequency. That's a, that's a whatever you want to go and describe it. It's a thought form. And when a sincere listener listens to that, they receive that frequency, when they receive that vibration, whatever you want to call it, like they're in that, they, they hear that, that sacred chord, and then they start seeing it in their lives. And that's what happens. So it's like almost like it's irrelevant of what, what we're talking about. It's just the quality in which we're bringing about it and the quality in which the listener has. And then it allows them to go and have or, or experience more and more, which to me, you know, in my opinion, is an indication of an integration with the deeper level of reality, not necessarily like, you know, the false story, which, which we're told by all of the control systems, but the level beneath it where things connect. So that's, that's my thought. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you for the email. Right on. Well said, Mike. And yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's definitely something that isn't unique to us. It's, it's just a, a process that people are taking part in. You know, and yeah. I'm really grateful to do this show with you and to have the audience that I do so quickly. I mean, you know, last year at this time, you know, I was there was like 10, 15, you know, 100 listeners of the podcast. And slowly but surely, here we are reaching people as far as Rome, Italy. So as far uh, as Rome, Italy, how, how many how many people listen to your podcast? Well, we're about to get to 300,000 total downloads. Let's see what the numbers are right now. So since sure, my family thinks I'm crazy. Right. So I started in October of 2020. And uh, since then, yeah, we've gotten 294,000 downloads. So How many episodes? Out of 130. Seven, right? Is the newest episode one hundred thirty-eight? One hundred thirty-eight episodes. Will you do the math for me? Will you tell me the average? Can you do that real quick? The yeah. total downloads by by episode. I'm curious what your average. The average. I'm a stats guy. Yeah. So the average was for a while. It was like in the thousands, but in the past two months, the average has been two thousand per episode, and then in the past couple weeks we've been getting up to like 3,000 per episode and 2,700 2,500 so we're we're getting in that range well this this one I'm curious so do what was it 294,000 total downloads yep divided by uh, the number of episodes 137 hold on let's see it is 2,146 point something so averaging 
total aggregate average would be then about 2,100 downloads per episode. Uh, that's remarkable, Mark. Well, I mean, I- you started this just as you said, like, was it October 2020? And this was a pet project of yours, more or less, right? You're like, I'm going to go and do this because I'm interested in doing this. And you put in the effort and now you go and you see what you've done. I mean, I think that's, that's insp- that should be inspiring to anyone, like not whether they want a podcast or not, but just like, you know, you just went out and you did it. So I definitely have an utmost amount of respect for anyone who goes and, and start something from scratch. And but yeah, you should, you should take a moment and, and, and reflect upon where the, what is ha- what has resulted from your initiative and hard work because there is a lot of work to do what you do thank you and uh, yeah i have plenty of time to reflect i'm doing this full time it doesn't pay like full time jobs that i've worked in the past but yeah with enough hard work maybe that'll change maybe that'll change All i right, can't leave friend. out sam tripoli someone i got to give credit to thank you for joining me mike while you're on the road drive safe All right. Sounds good, my friend. All right. Take it easy, Mike. All right.